Do you really believe that who you are matters more than what you do? This is huge for us. And, and let me tell you, our goals and our resolutions as we kick off years, these are fine. I get it. We all have them. But for those of us who have declared our allegiance to Jesus, if at the end of 2022, if we don't look any more like Jesus than when the year started, did we really accomplish anything? Was it really a good year? And, and let me tell you, I'll be the first to admit that there have been quite a few years in my life where I have uh, done a whole lot. I've accomplished a lot of things and goals and all that, but like I said last week, I started the year as a jerk and I ended the year as a jerk and I looked nothing like Jesus. And I think that for all of us, our goal every year, if we follow Jesus, is to look, to love, and to sound more like him in every area of our life. This sounds great, doesn't it? But it's just not that simple, is it? It's not that simple. If you were with us last week, you have a great idea of what this uh, braid is that we have here. Um, and this is a braid of paracord. And paracord, as I kind of went over last week, is this amazing parachute cord. It's just called paracord. That is one string that's made up of many strings. And you can see this online. It's so fancy, isn't it? All right, so we have this string that we have, and if you missed it last week, let me tell you, go back. You could jump on YouTube and catch up. You're definitely going to want to do this, but to make sure that we're on the same page, each of this braid, when we look at it, it's simply, when you look at this white string on top, this is a representation of who God has created us to be, created in his image. And when we have this, what we're looking at is this is a representation of our true self, who will we be? This is the true nature of who God has created us to be. And yet, when we look at these different color cords here, we find that there are certain lies that the, the enemy, that the devil, that Satan, that our world tells us we should be. This is what creates our false self. This is who we think we need to be for other people. And we kind of unpacked each of these different colors a tiny bit last week. The pink represents the I am what I have. We'll be looking at this lie number one that was uh, presented uh, last week. We're going to look at that t uh, next week. We're going to look at that next week. Then we had the black string, which was the I am what others think. I am what others think. And then finally, we had our blue string that represents... I am what I do. And when you came in this morning, you should have seen a little tiny piece of blue paracord that was seared off for you. And so you can go ahead and grab that. For those of you who like to have things in your pocket to think about to grab, you want to grab one of these as well as one of those books that are out there. If you didn't get it, to jot down some ideas and thoughts as you're thinking throughout the week. And so I should tell you that this is what we're going to be going over today. And to be very upfront with you, of, of all these lies that have weaved themselves into my life personally, um, this is the lie that I can say, uh, this is the lie that I go back to buying into the most. This is the lie that my identity gets wrapped up in more than any 
of these other lies. And, and yes, the other lies come into play at different times, but this one, this one kills me because I believe it the most. And I need to tell you, as we go throughout our time in Scripture today, if, if at any point you're thinking, man, he's getting forceful about this. He's getting aggressive about that thing. Like, back off a little bit. I, I need to tell you, it's that, that passion is, has been pointed at myself all week long. And I feel passionate about this because I know how destructive it is personally and how much this wrecks me. So I, I'm not necessarily aiming this at you and forcing it. It's really aimed at me. And it's weaved right into the fabric of our culture, right? We know that it's baked around us. We ask each other all the time, so what do you do? What is it that you do? Uh, we ask each other, what, what did you get on that test? So you know that video game that you're playing? What achievements did you get? What's the highest level character that you have? How many sporting things did you sport? And how fast did you sport them? Right? You fill in the blank, or how slow did you sport them? How low did you sport them? How high did you sport them? How many home-cooked meals did you make this week? And how many times did you have to eat out? How many hours of sleep did you get? And secretly, we're sitting here flexing less sleep as a sign of more working and value, right? Are any of these really bad questions? No, they're not bad questions. But if they're the only measurement that we use to figure out who we are and where we stand as a person, this lie might be weaved into your life like it is mine a little more than you think. Because we're constantly pushing for better performance, more usefulness, more success, and worldly success tempts us to find our worth and our value outside of God's inexhaustible free love for us through Jesus Christ. This lie, I am what I do, this is not a new lie, and Satan has been at work in our world from the beginning of creation trying to get this lie weaved into every one of our lives. And so for the next three weeks, to explore this a little more, we're going to go to a book that you uh, may have overlooked or passed by or chosen not to read in the Old Testament, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to Ecclesiastes with me, and, and this is going to be found... Um, just after the book of Proverbs. So if you open your Bible up to the center, it should be just about Psalms, and then go ahead and go to Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, how many of you have read Ecclesiastes before? Okay, cool. This is a, a interesting book. <laughs> it's an interesting book. If you've never read this, this is a book that's a middle of a three-part series that we would call wisdom literature. These are three books that are designed to help bring wisdom that the Jewish people would read in, in collective together. The first one would be Proverbs. Second one, which in Proverbs, um, if you could sum Proverbs up, it's, it's this amazing book that declares very simply, um, actually, all three of these books are trying to ask the same question. I should tell you that. They're all asking the same question, trying to find an answer to really what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live well? And the answers are going to be looked at in different ways. What does it mean to live well? 
In Proverbs, you find that there's a bunch of general principles. This is not a specific book. If you do this, this happens. But they're general principles that if you apply these to your lives, you will gain wisdom. If you gain wisdom, you will live a good life. And it kind of sometimes can sound a bit karma-ish, that good th if you do good things, you're a good person and good things happen to you. But when you are lazy and you do bad things, bad things happen to you. So obviously, wisdom is do good things. And, and that's what Proverbs is all about. It's amazing, right? It's like, oh, good. We could all live this life, do good things, good things happen. But this is where Ecclesiastes kind of comes in. This is a book that looks at what Proverbs says and says, yeah, but I, I kind of see the world a little bit different because that whole idea of do good, get good, do bad, get bad, doesn't always work out that way in the world, does it? In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon is who's writing this book. He writes about how life, life is totally random. It's full of chance. And, and you can't control life nearly as much as you think you can. To put it simply, you can't master life. This is what Ecclesiastes is all about. You can't master life. This is so encouraging, right? Aren't you so glad you came today? You're like, oh, this is what I showed up at Crossbridge for, to be told I can't control life. Just wait, it gets better. In chapter 1, the very second verse says this, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. This is who uh, King Solomon is writing about the teacher here. He says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. I told you, it gets better. Welcome to Crossbridge. You might be stopping to ask yourself this question. Why the heck would anyone read this book? If I picked up a book and it started with, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Boy, this is a page turner. Sign me up, right? You're probably thinking, give me the judges list from, from John Grisham right now, the number one on the New York Times bestseller. Give me that. At least I will maybe find if, you know, that Yankee player did something, if Aaron Judge has a list. I don't know. Um, but listen, why is it that if a book starts this way, many of us would pass it off and say, I don't want to read something like this. I don't want to even think about answering the question, is life really meaningless? But pause for a second with me, because this book is the middle of three books that the Jewish nation would hold as wisdom literature, that there's something in here for us to gain wisdom from. And the third wisdom book will be Job, and Job is how it's lived out. Both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is in the illustration of Job's life. But if I'm being honest, I, I, I think that most of us, we are too preoccupied with being productive. Right now, that's sitting and thinking and talking about a statement like we see in verse 2. This seems like a waste of time to us. But this should cause us to stop and ask the question, is the teacher right? Is, is the teacher right here? Is it all meaningless? The answer to this question really does matter. Your answer to this question matters.
it matters. It'll dictate the entire direction of how you live your life. So it's probably worthwhile for us to pause and to see what the teacher has to say. Would you agree? When, when he says that everything is meaningless, uh, say that word meaningless with me. Meaningless. It's, it's this wild word that if you go back into the Hebrew, this word in uh, Hebrew is the word Hebel or Hebel, okay, H-E-B-E-L or H-E-V-E-L, depending on, on how you kind of look at it. And this word doesn't just mean meaningless. It actually is a word picture. It means breath, vapor, or it has this image of smoke that's attached to it. And, and what the teacher is saying that is he's saying, our life is like this smoke, it's mysterious, it's beautiful, it's, it's, it's constantly shifting, and it might look solid, but the moment that you go to grab it, it's going to slip right through your fingers and it's gone. The original readers would have understood this word picture very well, but this metaphor has been lost in time and translation, and so we just translate it meaningless. But it's so important because life is the author is not saying that life has no meaning. That's not what he's saying. It, he, what he's trying to communicate right off the bat to us is that life's meaning isn't always clear, that it's confusing, it's, it's disorienting sometimes, it's uncontrollable, and that's what life looks like. And this whole book is now unpacking, then if life is so uncontrollable and like smoke and it's shifting, then how in the world am I supposed to live well, is it, is it through working hard? Is it through getting a lot of stuff and accumulating for myself? Is it through making sure that everyone around me is happy and that everyone likes me? How do I live well? What's it mean? Well, let's see what the teacher has to say. Jump over to chapter 2 with me. And in chapter 2, verse 9, this is what the teacher says. He says, so, and, and what he's saying so to is that for the first eight verses, he has just boasted exponentially about everything that he has had. We'll look at that next week. He says, so, I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. And my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Now, you may be thinking, oh, Jimmy, now we're talking. This is the kind of book I want to read, right? How do you end in a place where you get everything, your wisdom is endless, and anything you want, you can have and deny yourself no pleasure? That's what I want to figure out. Well, the teacher continues, and he says this. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was... It was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Here's a man who has everything, and it's not like he has to work to make a living, work to survive. At this point, he's working because he likes it. How many of you would love that? You could do the job you want, not for what you're being paid, but just to do it because you love doing that thing. Wouldn't that be great? This is where he is. He's doing something 
because doing and working hard does feel good. It does. It should. It's what he does. And, and, and he does all this stuff, and in the end, he looks at it all, and he's like, this is as useless as smoke in the wind. Where's the lasting value to what I just did? And maybe you're thinking, you know what, though? He's worked so hard. He's accumulated so much. His kids and the people around him are going to gain this inheritance now. Like, he's leaving this legacy on, and, and that's totally worth the extra hours of work and working hard. Well, King Solomon hears you. Jump down to verse 18 with me. It says this. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave it to others. I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This, too, is meaningless. What a great tragedy. Can you feel his frustration? And it's almost like he's writing, ugh, right here. Like, what's the value? And you're probably no longer wanting to read this book. You want to go back to the judges list, right? Where's the, the joy in this? If the value of our work is in what we leave behind, then, then how do we know that the people we're leaving it behind to are even going to use it correctly? I, I love how the teacher here says, they'll control everything that I've gained with my skill and hard work. Right? I've dedicated myself to something, and they're going to be the ones who benefit from it? But will they really even benefit? Because... They won't have the knowledge. They won't have the skill that comes from all of this hard work. They're going to have all the benefit but no wisdom. And the two words that he uses at the end, he says, this is a great tragedy, a great tragedy, getting money without working for it. It's a tragedy. Now, before you try to go and make this political in your mind, you just stop right there because this is not political. We stay biblical. I don't care where you stand politically. But biblically, this is what this is talking about right here. You can work hard to leave everything you want to whomever you want, but if they haven't worked for it, if they have no work ethic and have no wisdom from that, this is a great tragedy. And why would it be a great tragedy? Because I need you to remember that you and I are created in the image of God, that he took the time for every single one of us to start to knit us together in our mother's womb. That every one of these knots is intentional. And at the very core of who we are, he says, you, you look like me. You look like me. And you know what God did at creation? He worked for six days creating the cosmos that we live in and everything in it. And there is value in working hard. You need to hear that, that God demonstrates work is not bad. And after each day that he worked, he stopped, he looked at it, and he was like, hmm, this is good. This is good. There's satisfaction in a job well done, isn't there? There's satisfaction in that. And then when he creates man, he looks at man, and he's like, this, this is very good. Why? Because this is the moment 
that he entered into intentional relationship. And relationships are, these are very good for us because they represent our God. And then he looks at Adam and Eve and he tasks them. He gives them work. He gives them work and he says, it's your job to tend the garden. It's your job to work the garden. He's not putting a burden on them. He's putting a blessing into their life. Work is not evil. It is a gift from God. So when the teacher here says that it's a great tragedy to hand all this hard-earned money to people who didn't earn it, could it be because that with all of this inheritance, they would never really understand the value in working hard? That they would miss this chance to connect with a part of who God is, and instead of being better off, it would contribute to the lie I am what I do. Because the truth is, they'd have no value because they don't do anything. There's value in what we do, but it cannot define who we are. And so the teacher in what I feel like is a very exasperated voice, he asks this question in verse 22. Jump to verse 22 with me in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, so what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. What's the point? If all work does then is bring us anxiety, pain, grief, and sleepless nights. If work completely messes up our life, then what's the point? And let me just make a quick aside here for us, and, and that's if your current job, where you are, brings you nothing but anxiety, pain, grief, and sleepless nights, may I suggest to you, you need to find another job. Unless it's parenting, then you're just going to have to wait this out. You can't transfer to another department, okay? But seriously, though, I, I know that every job has parts that stink, except for pastoring, of course. This is the perfect, easiest job. I, I know that we all have seasons that you just have to push through, that you've got to work a little harder. I get all of that. But if that is all the time, that is not a season. That is your job. And this is your life. And if this is your life, you may want to rethink if what you're making or the title that you are clinging to is worth what you're giving up. Seriously, reconsider this. But King Solomon even talks about seasons in our life. He says, I get that there are seasons. If you jump into chapter 3, the first couple of verses in chapter 3 are this beautiful poem um, that, that, that he writes this should be very familiar to many of you if you've listened to the classics. How many of you have he heard the song Turn, Turn, Turn from the Birds? Okay, yes, some of you have heard this song. Um, that's great. You just dated yourself since it was recorded in 1965. Well done. But this is a beautiful poem about it. It's just like, listen, life is going to continue to change in front of you all the time. There's a time for everything and a season for everything. So you got to recognize things are going to change like smoke. It's going to shift. It's going to move. And, and since you can't control your life, do me a favor. Stop trying. Stop trying. You only have control over one thing, and it is not your work. 
I'll give you the answer to that thing in a minute because let's jump to chapter 3. We'll jump down past that little poem into verse 9. What do people really get for all their hard work? I have seen the burden God has placed on all of us. Now, work is a gift. We know that. But it's also a burden when it consumes us. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles out with you, if you've you got your little books out with you, would you do me a favor and circle that word placed, okay? Circle that word placed, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do to make this jump out that you will go back to it, okay? Because he continues in verse 11, he says, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted, go ahead, circle it, underline it, highlight it. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Now, this, this is so awesome. So you're going to have to bear with me for a second here because I'm about to get excited because Solomon is sticking with his whole word picture things. And this makes sense to me because I think in picture. I don't think in words. I see pictures all the time. And, and, and doing things or working is a blessing because it allows us to relate to God. But God has also placed work as a burden on us. Now, if you remember, Adam and Eve are tasked with working the garden, but they choose to go outside of God's plan, and, and, and God curses, and he puts a curse on Eve, and then he puts a curse on Adam. And when he puts a curse on Adam, he says, now by the sweat of your brow, you're going to find your value. And he curses the earth, and the earth is difficult to work, and he's like, it's no longer going to be easy. This is going to be hard and a burden. You're going to feel this. So it's no longer the blessing that we could have experienced, now there's a burden that's involved in this that's sitting on us. And the problem is, and the burden is, no matter how much we've worked, there's always more to do. And because there's always more to do, we'll always want to do it. And we'll always want to find our value. And this is a burden that's placed on us. But if you look at verse 11, not only is there a burden on us, but God has also placed and planted something inside us. He has planted. The original readers are, 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 are very much, you know, farming. They understand it. They would have understood that when you had a seed, it would produce whatever you planted, that it could only grow into what it was designed for. And here it says that God has planted what? Go ahead, you could cheat and use your Bibles. God has planted eternity. God has planted eternity into our insides into our heart and hear this word eternity in in hebrew it's olam olam it, it means that god has planted a long time back and times to come god has planted our history and our future god has planted all of this in our hearts that in our inner person at the core of who we are is eternity that when god started to knit us he says, you know what? I get that all of this exists, but at the very center of your heart, at the very center of your soul is planted a seed to think about the big things in life, to think about eternity. The questions about who we are and our existence as humans on this earth are hardwired into us and God-given. Let me see your eyes right now because I believe that there's someone else here this morning or online. You need to hear this as bad as I did all week long. You were not created for this world. You were not knit together for this world. 
So why do you believe it's lies? Why is it so easy to forget the eternity that's been planted in our hearts and just trying to keep doing more? Why do we feel this drive all the time that the world tells us that you have to be the best at something? Everything you put your hand to, you should be the best. And if for some reason, if you don't think that you can win, that you can succeed, if you don't think you could be the best, you don't even want to try it, do it, start it, or think about it. This is a lie. This is a lie that wraps us up in our fear of failing or, or our desire to be a perfectionist. This grips our identity. And this fear that we have, it begins to choke out. It begins to wrap itself around our identity. And we become more like the world around us as we compete with each other, choking out the questions of who really am I? Why am I here and what am I supposed to do? Who's got time to think about eternity right now? There's too much to do. I don't have time for that. There's not a t enough time in the day that I have to accomplish the things that I need to do. So pondering eternity, sitting with dedicated time with God every day, you know what? That can wait till Sunday. Pastor Jimmy can do that for me then I can get back to work and doing the things that are important. Let me ask you, how many times has a situation come up in your life where you knew the seed of your heart, the seed of your heart was screaming because you knew that you wanted to jump into something that was happening, but you just didn't have the time to do it. There's not enough time for... You fill in the blank. There's not enough time for... Maybe, maybe there's not enough time because you said yes to too many things and time is not your problem, your identity is. Your busyness is not a medal of your value. It's a noose from the enemy robbing you of life and love and choking out this eternal seed. And if you find yourself getting frustrated when you see people taking pictures of, of them sitting on the beach or going in their backyards with friends, they're getting away for another vacation, and you find yourself frustrated, you need to ask yourself, why are you so frustrated? Are you mad because they think that they should be working more? Do you think that they're wasting time? Do you think that, that they should be more productive with the time that they have? Why in the world are you trying to control their life? You can't even control yours. Which brings us back to the teacher's point that he's been trying to make is since you cannot control your own life, stop trying. You only have control over one thing, and it's this. Jump to verse 12 with me. So I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. I see a little bit of confusion in your eyes. You're like, wait, wait a second. That's not what I expected to hear today. I know. But for those of you who identify with this lie like me and this has wrapped itself around you, this may be a little bit harder than you think because 
the thing that we can control is how we show up to each moment. Even the thought of people getting together to enjoy life, that's frustrating for some of you. This isn't appealing to you because you don't know how to stop. You say things like, like, I'll rest when I'm dead. I'll enjoy life on vacation. That's if I take one. And, and probably in between a couple of those emails that I just have to get back, you know, that call that I might have to take, the meeting that I'll have to go to, that assignment that I just have to finish for school. And I mean, is this passage just telling us, listen, eat, drink, and be merry. This is all that life should be. Completely stop working and party all the time. No, that's not what it's calling us to do. If you look at it, it's saying, slow down. Slow down and realize what matters most here. This is a challenge to the reader to find wisdom in not doing. To be present. To look at what God has blessed you with through your work and to enjoy it. Yes, we should work hard, but we should enjoy the life that we live too. This is God's gift to us and a gift to those closest to us. When we slow down enough to be with God and to be with the people around us instead of constantly doing to prove our worth to both or to ourselves, we begin to water this seed of eternity that is planted in our hearts. And it's like untying each knot of these lies. Could you imagine how different your life would look if every time this lie presented itself, you called it out and said, that's not who I am. Every time this ugly lie showed up, you punched it in the face with truth. I feel like that's the only way that some of these lies go is you gotta be aggressive. How would your stress level change, really? How different would college look? How different would high school look? How different would your team look? How different would parenting look or your work look or your marriage look? How different would your family look? How different would your relationship with God look if you stopped trying to impress him and just watered the seed of eternity by being present? I told you, this is a battle I fight. And I hate it. This week it destroyed me a couple times. And every time I have to remind myself that this comes up, one thing. My identity was settled at the cross of Jesus. My identity was settled at the cross of Jesus. This, this is who I am. This is not who I am. This is who I am. My identity was settled at the cross of Jesus. And so as we close today, all I want to ask you to do is to answer honestly, like last week, some of the questions. That's why we have these books for you, is to, to, for you to jot down some questions that you can think through this week. And in addition to these questions, I wanna give you two simple steps that you can just try to put into practice this week. And if you're looking for more teaching on either of these steps, you can go back into our Pathways series on YouTube and uh, get some deeper teaching into this. But for those of you who, like me, your identity is wrapped up in what you do, the first step is practicing silent prayer, okay? Silent prayer. This is simply setting, amount, setting a, a certain period of time where you do nothing. 
but sit and be present to God. Okay, this is not a time for your reading and soaping. This is not journaling, no music, no praying, nothing. Nothing, just you in complete silence and God. Here's how long can you make it before you start to freak out? How long before your mind goes into the do's and the lists and the things? And every time it does, don't kill yourself for it. Don't frustrate you because the lie will wrap itself around. Instead, my identity was settled at the cross of Christ, and it's an opportunity to go back into silence. For many of you, 10 seconds will be enough. I guarantee it. You'll freak out over this. Practice that. The second step is practicing Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath is a 24-hour period where you do not work at all. No chores, no jobs, no things where you just go ahead, turn your computer off. If your work email isn't checked, dishes are left in the sink for tomorrow. Already, some of you are like, no. Some of you are like, dream come true. Listen, it's a day of complete rest. It's a day of complete rest. This will punch that lie in the face every single week. Jump onto our Pathway series. You can explore this a little more. And the three questions I want to leave you with now that you can write down are this. And the first one is, do you avoid starting new things or find yourself overworking? Why? You can go ahead and write this, and I'm going to give you a, a minute or two just to think through these after. Do you avoid starting new things or find yourself overworking? The second question, how has the lie, I am what I do, impacted your relationship with God, family, and coworkers? How has the lie, I am what I do, impacted your relationships with God, family, and coworkers? And the final question, what do you think would happen if you took 24 hours off each week? What do you think would happen if you took 24 hours off each week? As you do this, don't lie. No one's reading your book. So if you're like, if you're thinking everything would crumble, the world would stop, write it down. Be honest. Be honest, seriously. Let's just take a minute and let me pray for us. And then we'll take a minute. Holy Spirit, would you, in this moment, allow one of these questions to pop for each of us that needs an answer now to reveal a part of that not that we could undo to see the seed of eternity planted in us. Give us insight in this time of silence.
Father God, I thank you for planting eternity in us. Would you forgive me for the times that the real questions of life have come to my mind and I've put it off saying I don't have time for this. That opportunities that you have put in front of me to love like Christ, would you forgive me for the moments I have not had time for because I've said yes to things that you've not asked. And I've done that to show that I'm worth it to prove myself to others. I am so thankful for your forgiveness that at the cross before I did anything, you said, I love you, I choose you, and you did nothing. I've done it for you. Holy Spirit, would you remind us this week, as we hold these little blue pieces of string, would you remind us this week that, that we are not defined by what we do, but we are defined by what you've done. And that this week we would live this out and every time we touch this string that it, it, it's in our pocket, it's in our purse, it's in our backpack, it's somewhere around us that we see it, we would remember that our identity was established at the cross not by working harder all the time and that it's important for us to slow down, to be present for relationships, to eat, to drink, to enjoy the life that you've given us. Jesus, thank you so much. We love you, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.